thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. This week we have an incredibly special guest. I've had the privilege of speaking on stage with him. I think the topic is incredibly important. It is about a conversation around mental health and well-being. Um, he is known as the unbreakable farmer, Mr. Warren Davies. But the first time I spoke with him, he actually stood on stage with a broken arm. So <laughs> I thought that was quite interesting. Um, but welcome to the show, gorgeous Warren. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for, for um, inviting me on and, and, and good to meet you too, Cindy. Oh, well, look, we don't have the gorgeous Karen with us this week, but we will delve deep into certain conversations and questions that she would ask. But perhaps for our listeners and those that haven't heard of you, Warren, could you give us a brief background as to who you are and how did you get to coming up with the name The Unbreakable Farmer? Well, um, it's just, it's been probably a life life journey, um, I suppose, that got me to to starting on this speaking career as um, the Unbreakable Farmer. But I, I suppose that the story started uh, back when I was growing up. Um, I was growing up in Melbourne and um, Dad always harboured this dream of being a, being a farmer. And, yeah, we found ourselves when I was 15 moving out of the city to the country and Dad had um, purchased his first farm and... Um, and that was the start of our, I suppose, our, our life in the country and our life on as dairy farmers. And 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 you know, as a fifteen year old kid, I thought farming was all about motorbikes and tractors, and you know, <laughs> thought it was all uh, fantastic and all a bit of fun. And and I was I was struggling at school and and needed to find a career path. Um, that career path. Um, <sighs> It kind of uh, due to my schooling and all that was you know I looked at farming um, and and started a job as a farmhand when I was sixteen um, and that that evolved over the the next um, five to seven years of learning all the skills that I needed to know on that working for this guy who happened to be one of the best farmers in the district around around where I'm from and learned a lot of skills and by the time I was twenty two. Um, and just on the verge of getting married, uh, fairly naive and, and cocky, thought I knew everything I needed to know and, and, and branched out on, on my own journey. But that journey, um, the opportunity had come, that journey started by the opportunity of a couple of hundred acres come up um, for sale next door to mum and dad's. And, and uh, we pounced on that and... Um, joined the two farms together and created a family business and 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 went into that business and and I and I know Kim that you've heard me speak and you've heard a bit of this story and um, you know naively going into that business I knew I was going into business with mum and dad um, and that sometimes in a family business can be fraught with danger. Uh, secondly, I knew I was going into business with the banks because they borrowed me the money, but probably didn't pay much attention to my silent business partner. Um, and her name was Mother Nature, and, and she was the one that was probably going to throw the biggest curveballs at me um, over that journey. 
and and that journey then um, you know through through some of the things that happened um, either from Mother Nature or or a, um, a couple of other things that happened on the farm triggered a thing that what I now share um, in my talks and, and you know what I do now is that it triggered my mental health journey as well and that first started with a flood um, yeah triggered a bit of a um, you know, a downward spiral but didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, then we had a family bust up and on the fa- farm and family is my number one value so it had a really big impact on, on my, my well-being and my mental health. And I was slowly spiralling out of control and then along came Mother Nature again and threw us a drought and, and that drought continued on um, after past 12 months and then into you know two years and 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 the stress um the stress that was caused by that triggered even further relapse with you know with my mental health conditions and and then spiraled into depression and um yeah i've got to into some really dark places and and i suppose then we actually after that after i got to my darkest of darkest points we actually lost the farm um, we decided that we could not continue farming anymore. We were we were losing too much money, so um, we decided just to walk away. We couldn't sell the farm, and we walked away from that farm um, with basically nothing. Um, and I also symbolically, I suppose, as I walked out the front gate that day when we when we left our farm, I un- unclipped my identity and left it on the on the front gate, which um, that coupled with struggling with mental health challenges as well um, kind of you know took a long time to recover from and and especially searching for for my identity and my purpose in life again because I always thought I was going to be a farmer so searching for that purpose um, trying to find who I am was a yeah, was a was a journey and a half and I did number number of things and often falling back to farming because I was pretty good at that um without pumping my own tires up i was pretty good at farming um but it also exposed me to other things as being a manager i was managing other people and not just myself and i learned lots of things and, and all these little bits and pieces that i was doing along the way planted seeds to eventually um, evolve into what i'm doing now and one of the things probably the most important or one of the most important jobs that i had that <coughs> really planted the seed was I did real estate for three years and being a farm specialist, sitting down at tables with people, you know, around their kitchen table, talking about their journey and understanding that everyone's got a story, um, but also dealing with, at that stage, the three Ds that was either death, divorce or drought and, and trying to help people navigate um, their journey into selling their farm, but also, um, uh, also realizing at the same time that I kind of was more of a counselor than a than a real estate agent and and that's kind of evolved into what I do now and how the unbreakable farmer whole thing come about was I ended up in this search and this journey of trying to find my purpose and my identity I did a speaker course and in that speaker course one of the exercises we had to do was um, first workshop was to stand up and share our story unrehearsed um, without any, you know, warning. The facilitator just as we walked in the room said, oh, and by the way, before coffee, 
break this morning, we'll be all sharing our story. So didn't really know why I was there in the first place. Um, most of the other participants in this course were all business owners wanting to uh, uh, learn the art of articulating their business a lot better than they were through through speaking. Me, I was just there because, well, basically the facilitator said that I had a story and he, and he urged me to attend. After sharing my story at that workshop, a guy came up to me um, as we were going to the coffee break and he said, yeah, you're the unbreakable farmer. And I thought, hmm, it's a pretty catchy name. So instead of going and grab a cup of coffee, I went to GoDaddy and Googled the unbreakable farmer and the domain name was free, so I registered it there and then. And basically that's the that's the start of how the unbreakable farmer come about and, and now leads into the work that I do now. It's quite a remarkable story and I'm sure, like you said, everybody has a story and perhaps for us city folk, we have no appreciation and certainly very little understanding of what a farmer, whether it's dairy, sugar, cane, uh, fruits and vegetables, um, grain, whatever it is, there is a lot of stories. Could you tell me, is it true that out of the eight people that suicide each day in this country, six of those are men. Uh, do you know the statistics of how many of those are farmers? Um, that's a, a stat that can't, uh, I can't find any research to quantify it, but I know it's a big percentage, <laughs> um, mm. especially in struggling times. I don't know the exact stat because every time you go to, to look for those figures, they're, they're hard, to, hard to find because they only do it by region and not by... Um, uh, not, not by um, employment or, or job or whatever it is, um, whatever you want to, you know, whatever group that they want to um, attribute that stat to. So, but I know um, just from personal experience, it's fairly high. Um, and I also know that the stats don't really paint the true picture either. Uh, that's, that's one thing that I have learnt um, over the last few years that, especially around uh, mental health, uh, mental illness, and, and, and particularly suicide, statistics don't really paint the true picture. It's quite sad and tragic and mm. something that maybe we could delve into a little bit later. But there was a story you told on stage. Um, I just want to go back to your own unravelling and your own ahas, if you like, as to where where was the epiphany that you knew you were in trouble, that you needed help, or was that a process in itself? Because I remember one particular story of yours with the football game. Could you lead us into that and how you found where your breaking point was? I think with um, it was probably a build-up thing. Um, and I think the underlying part of my story is that I didn't do anything about it. Uh, I didn't reach out and seek help. All the things that I that I tell people and I don't tell people to do that I urge them to do now, my lessons that I learned are all the things that I did badly. And one of those things was like communicating how I was feeling because it's, um, I always say, especially if I'm talking to a farming, farming group, like I was tarred with the brush twice. I was a bloke and I was a farmer. So there was no way known that I was going to reach out or I didn't think it was the right thing to do to reach out and actually talk about your emotions and how you were feeling and, and, and how you were travelling. So it was a, it was a real build-up um, 
a build-up of things. And with the ongoing drought, the added pressure, um, you know, going taking it back a step um, further than to the family breakup because family was my number one value. It had a big effect on me. Um, it took a, a bit of working through to get um, to resolve that situation. And one of those things were that we brought my parents out of the farm, took on a lot of debt which was only a few years before the drought hit. So we were fairly financially highly geared um, but had a really clear plan of what it, we wanted to do. And, and when the drought first hit and took hold, um, that plan was really robust and we were moving forward and we still um, we were moving forward and, and making progress in our business it was when it hit the second year and, and commodities got dearer and, and things got tighter, including water because we're in an irrigation area. A lot of things, you know, a, a lot of pressure was added. Um, and the story that you allude to, Kim, is that, um, you know, one of my outlets was playing football, AFL or footy or, you know, our local footy here. And, um, yeah, if there was an incident on the footy field when I was coaching, where I was playing against some um, some of my mates, some of my best mates, and, and and one of my mates, you know, said something to me, and all of a sudden, everything that was going on around me, the drought, the the, the way I was feeling, the whole thing just unraveled right at that point, and I snapped and I chased him till I caught up with him, and then basically King hit him on the ground and um, knocked him out, and. Um, the ensuing scuffle and all that, but I knew that, you know, that there was something, you know, everything was just falling apart at that stage because footy was my outlet. Um, that was my, you know, my way of expressing myself but not in that way and obviously that's the way I was feeling. That's the way I expressed myself that day, um, which I will, um, you shouldn't have regrets, but I will regret that day forever. <laughs> and that. You know, from that, my, you know, I lost the, you know, the, the the confidence of my best mate at the same time, and and we didn't speak for you know three and a half years, which was um, really challenging when you know everything else was going on at the same time. So I knew then that I was in trouble. You know, my my well being was was really being challenged by everything that was happening around me, but. Um, I really wasn't taking enough action. I wasn't communicating with the people around me and, and from that point then disconnected from everything that I really enjoyed doing, being involved in my community, being involved, you know, in my family, all those things I, I disconnected from, which, you know, you couple that with everything else that was going on was, you know, just a recipe for disaster really because... I was isolating myself and you know, I say in my talks now, isolation's the biggest killer. Um, you know, it's okay to have your, your quiet time. I understand that, you know, some isolated time by yourself. But, you know, when you're isolating yourself for the reason, you know, of depression and, um, you know, and, and feeling all the emotions that I was feeling and, and carrying the shame and the guilt that I was carrying because I felt I was letting everyone down, including myself, uh, isolations not a, not a good um, uh, you know not recommended to isolate yourself from everyone you need to be talking and 
and and that's what I did. And so yeah, that's that's where I kind of realised that you know everything was unraveling, but it was a downward spiral from that point, really. Can you tell us, Warren, the time period um, of when you bought and purchased your property to when um, you walked away from it? How many years was that? Um, just got to try and work it, do the numbers, but I think we would have been um, 14 years, 15 years. Oh, so it was quite quite some time. So you would have done a lot of work on that place. It, oh, it, yeah, yeah, there would have been a lot of work for you to walk away from, which I think would have been a very hard thing to do. It was a lifetime's work, really, or felt like a lifetime work at that stage. We'd, um, you know, we basically, being non-generational farmers, that was, you know, and particularly being young and raising a family, we it was more than our farm, you know. By the time we left our farm, we had four kids. Um, our three oldest kids, that's where they grew up, you know. We, we, we built our home. It was more than our farm. It was our, it was our job, our business, our place where we lived, where our kids grew up, um, where our kids had their freedom, you know. Um, it was our everything. It was all good. All consuming farming's all consuming, and especially your own farm. It's um, yeah, it's more than just a, it's more than a business. But um, at the end of the day, the harsh reality of of life is is that it is only just a business. <laughs> and yeah, but it was more than just a business because you, like you said, it, it was your home. So, can you just tell us what area um, in Australia you were in and um. Oh, I had two questions, but let's start with the area that it was in. Yeah, so it's in northern Victoria. So we're situated in a um, – where our farm was situated in a town called – well, on the edge of a town called Tongala, which is about halfway between Shepparton and Echuca. Mm-hmm. So we're in the right in the middle of the Goulburn Valley in the irrigation area of the Goulburn Valley. So, um, you know, it was was then, <laughs> not quite so much now, but a very rich dairy area of um, – of Victoria and, and one of the biggest or bigger dairy um, regions of Australia. So, yeah, it was um, it, we were right in the mix, mix uh, you know, the midst of and where, and where we lived, uh, we're on a, um, you know, a stretch of dirt that was pretty well renowned um, like through that area um, for really good dairy farms. And, um, yeah, so it was we'd been there uh, like – as I said, we weren't generational farmers, but you know, um, families all around us were all—they were all, you know, second, third, or fourth generation farmers that were around us. And dairy was the only thing that um, you farmed, or did you farm other things? No, dairy was um, on Dad's first farm. He tried a few different things. He grew strawberries, and um, but yeah, we were we were dairy farmers. I was, um, yeah, focused on. Um, sticking to my my lane, as they say, sticking mm. to my highway, and yeah. So daring was we never diversified into anything else. We weren't. We were more of an in, um, intensive, typical kind of Golden Valley farm where you know you've only got enough land to do what you were doing. Um, you weren't doing anything else. Um, you know, I've managed farms since that. You know do lots of other stuff you got dairy and then you grow grain and yeah. you've got you know you've got fodder crops and all that sort of stuff but basically we were um 
yeah, we were just um, predominantly dairy. And who did you sell your milk to? Uh, a number of different factories. At first, we we were supplying Nestle, which were they had a factory in Tongala, mm-hmm. um, and then we were supplying um, dairy farmers, which was um, basically more um, fresh milk kind of supply, um, you know, domestic fresh milk, where Nestle were more um, turning it into powder or you know condensed milk or any of those kind of products that. But Nestle make so. But when we moved to dairy farmers, we were um, we were looking for a, a better paying contract, and that's what we did. Which that contract supplied yeah, more fresh milk to the Australian market, I suppose. Yeah, and do you think you were paid well? Ah, uh, look, it had its ups and downs. Um, at one stage, we were we were getting paid terribly <laughs> and that's what that that prompted the move from Nestle I think the year that we moved from Nestle I think we were getting paid 22 cents a litre for our milk that year and I secured a contract with um, for dairy farmers for year-round supply and totally different marketplace for I think 45 cents a litre um, even still you know even at those prices now it's still below the um, cost of production. So, and do you process the milk as far as the pasteurisation, or it went raw to dairy farmers and Nestle? Yeah, just raw. raw. So not pasteurised on farm. It was just yeah, yeah, straight into your vat, and then got picked up um, once a day by the milk tanker and taken to the factory, and then they pasteurise it and do whatever they, they get whatever product they're making out of that milk, and then sell it for a fortune. Yep, <laughs> that's a funny. the The milk market is a is a is a funny game, but yeah. So yeah, they 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 value add, and off they go. A few businesses that I've managed for um, one of the things that a lot of corporate farms are doing now is trying to vertically integrate their businesses. Now that you know they're in tra- yeah, control, everything from growing the fodder to the to the sale of the product. Mm. Um, <laughs> Which is, you know, you've got a lot more control. Um, but as a dairy farmer, just as a normal everyday dairy farmer, you're a price taker, um, you're a price maker. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm from Bendigo, and I'm from I'm a 1960s child, so I remember the day when the milk was delivered in glass jars to our front door with the cream on the top yep. from the farmer. Yeah. Yeah. That's. And that- that's um that still happens in certain like some there's some um, and they're more than boutique um, farmers now but there's some farmers now that have started up their own brands and they're you know Gippsland jerseys one that comes to mind Kai Valley Dairies here close to home is another one where they do their own you know they process their own milk and and now I've got other suppliers on you know other farmers to supply them as well on board to um you know, produce, um, you know, niche, I suppose, niche brands compared to this, the everyday standard milk. So you can still buy those without being in bottles. Some of them still do bottles, but with the cream on top, like you used to be able to in the good old days. Yeah. Well, up here we've got um, Mulaney Dairies and they use other dairies to, and they collect their, uh, or from other farmers, they collect the milk and that's distributed around our local area. We've got Kalula. So I feel like like 
everything that you've been speaking about, it all, it's almost like dairy farmers and Nestle screwed you down so far, like 22 cents a litre and 45 cents a litre. Thank goodness you almost you doubled your money. Yeah. But uh, were they part of the issue with the falling? Like you had the banks on your back, no doubt. You had, you're getting very little money for the milk that you're producing. Uh, were they all like part of the downfall of what happened with you, the drought? I, I loved how you said my silent business partner was Mother Nature. Yeah. Uh, I didn't pay her enough respect at the start. Um, didn't understand. Oh, I did understand, but probably didn't pay that enough respect. I thought I was above her. <laughs> well, not above her, but you know, I could, I could control. And that's one of the lesson, biggest lessons, you know, that I've, I've learned out of my whole journey is you can only control what you can control, and don't try and do otherwise because it can, um, yeah, lead to your downfall. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't control um, the rain that falls. We can't control the sun that shines because we know that that sun's going to come up, but we just yeah. don't know about those rains. So, but to, but to answer your question directly, there was lots of issues. Obviously, there was you know the financial pressure, but we had a plan, and, and we we'd sat with advisors and, and we worked out the plan, even at those milk prices, how we could make money. And and look, we you know the drought. The first little bit of the drought really taught us some good lessons and, and we, were, we were going along all right. It was just then as the drought went on, things got tighter, feed prices went through the roof, etc., uh, etc. Et you know, water got tighter and we were in an irrigation area. So, you know, we relied on that irrigation. So when you didn't have, you know, you could only water for a certain part of the year, it made it difficult to grow the grass that you needed. So then you relied on outside feed sources, which then, as the drought got, um, went on, those feed sources got dearer and dearer. So that, that were one, one of the things. But, look, everyone was in the same boat and that's why I say everyone's story is unique. It was the way that I handled it or my, my underlying um, mental health challenges that I had, you know, were triggered by these stresses um, and that's, you know, led to, led to my downfall. Yeah. When, when you're talking about mental health issues, I'd just love you to explain how did you know it was a mental health issue as opposed to just, and no disrespect, but an emotional, uh, an emotion? I mean, where's the line from being emotional or down or concerned or worried into it becoming what we bracket as a mental health issue? Do you, can you explain where you got to with that? Well. Over the over the years leading up to that, I you know I'd been struggling you know, around the family breakup. I was struggling. I did actually go and seek help. Didn't take it seriously enough, but you know it was you know when you go to the doctor and you you talk about things, um, you know I was diagnosed then that I had depression. Um, you know, and I was. Um, you know, and I've always been anxious and, and, you know, you've heard me share my story, Kim, that, you know, part of the, these workshops at this speaker course, kind of one of the, the next work, workshops was about unpacking our story and trying to find the value of it. Um, in that process, I actually realised that, you know, and I didn't acknowledge it at the time and didn't understand what it was, but now looking back, when I was young, um, I was struggling with anxiety and self-esteem issues way back as far as, you know, and I'm 
blessed or cursed, whichever way you want to look at it, with a really good memory. And I can remember, you know, around seven years old where, you know, I was struggling with that stuff but didn't understand it, obviously, as a kid and didn't acknowledge it. And once again, never reached out and sought help about it. And I think those things just com- compounded over the, over the time. But I think one of the things that you could, you know, and I know this now, you know, um, traveling around Australia, speaking in communities like um, where I was recently in Texas, in Queensland, and that, and you just know that, you know, yeah, you start off with and you're just feeling down and you know, you're challenged by your financial situation and by the weather and all that. But, you know, prolonged exposure to an enormous amounts of stress can lead to other things. And, and that's where I think I got to. So, yeah, probably when I first went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with depression, you know, I probably didn't believe it um, and probably thought, you know, maybe it's just I'm feeling down and, you know, I've got to work my way out of it. But the thing is that it just kept spiralling out of control and, you know, when you get to a a situation where you're suicidal, (laughs) it's kind of got out of hand and and that's kind of where I got to. Tell me what the doctor, when you went to the doctor, what was his... um prescription to heal this or what was his way it ha- what was the way it was handled in order for you to come out of that depression yeah so the first time I went uh, I went to the doctor and you, you answer the questions that they ask you so they can assess where you're at um, I was put on a mental health plan which if you go to the GP now and you go you know, that's what they'll, they'll put you on. I was given some antidepressants and in that part of that mental health plan is then you go and see a psychologist um, and you can talk through your problems with them or, you know, your issues with them and, and see how they can help you. One thing with me because, you know, I was still hell-bent on being that really good farmer um, and, you know, because I didn't... <laughs> Have a which was really hard, as you said, Kim, a few months back when I didn't have a broken arm or a broken leg. I could still um, do what I was doing. Um, I didn't really pay enough respect to that diagnosis, and and just it, I didn't search for anything outside of that. So the bottom line is those those antidepressants sat on the fridge and I didn't take them because I was too caught up in doing what I was doing and one day led to a week, it led to a month, led to, you know, six months down the track and I was still sitting there. When I did end up going back to the doctors and got prescribed antidepressants again, the first dose didn't work so then you get a a different dose to see if that works, etc., etc., I found after taking them for a, a fair while that they were making me feel worse and they were better and that led me on to my journey that I'm kind of on now, which is a ever-evolving journey of, you know, trying to find what works for me, you know. And look, and please, I'm not a professional and I'm not saying this is everyone's course of action, but antidepressants weren't for me. Um, why I didn't believe they, they were and I went searching for other ways to, you know, to combat what I was going through. 
Lauren, I'm just curious too. I mean, it was, we're very grateful to you sharing the story uh, and I don't want to pigeonhole men as, and there seems to be a bit of a movement at the moment for men to be opening up a bit more. I'm curious as to how your wife was dealing with all of this and raising the four children and did you guys have deep and meaningful conversations at night? Did you, when the kids were asleep, did you confront things together or was it soldier on, chin up, we've got this? How did you both, how did she cope with it and also how did you do that together, if at all? Yeah, and that, that's one of my biggest downfalls is that we didn't do it together. Um, we were together, but we were both facing the same challenges as, and one of one of my my things now is I realised, you know, one of the reasons I found it hard to reach out to to her and talk about how I was feeling is because I didn't want to burden her any more than she already was because she was travelling the same journey and it and it had a big effect on on us, um, not a, in a relationship or you know change our relationship it had to, but um, it had a big effect on us because you know it was. Basically, it was you know fight, fight or sink kind of mentality. Is that you just had to keep fighting to try and save what you you know your business, or that was sink. And you know we were both fighting to try and save our, our business. But the financial stress that come along with the drought, and that you know you know we own, as dairy farmers, you get paid once a month on the 15th and I think we still both tremble on the 15th knowing that you know your milk check was coming in and there was a pile of bills bigger than the, the, the milk check was ever going to pay um, but you know um, we, we, we had conversations but they weren't probably deep enough we needed um, to be able to support each other um, we were kind of both floating aimlessly um, and I know, look, and also speaking to lots of families and I've been fortunate enough um, to be put in the nerve-wracking position position of doing a couple of um, just all-women presentations where my only audience is women. And um, I know that this, what I'm telling you here is not unique. This is how it happens. Like, I, I, I don't feel bad that, you know, in hindsight, I don't feel bad that, you know, oh, I should have spoke because this is what's happening because everyone's under so much pressure. Just try and do what you can do. You're in this survival mode situation that you're just trying to scramble your way, you know, trying to seek, you know, scramble for air kind of thing. And that's what it felt like on days like you were just scrambling to keep your head above water so you could take a you know, breath of air. Um, that's, that's where it gets to. And so you're both just trying to fight, keep, you know, keep yourself on track, and and for me, being that the, the male in that in that whole um, situation is then you know the the added layer of you know I'm the breadwinner or I'm the you know that um, masculine kind of thought process of you know on the not the king of the house. I've never thought of myself as that, but you know, you're you're the person that's in charge here, and you, you can't let your family down, and that adds another layer as well. Um, well, that to me added an extra layer of pressure that you know was also adding to everything else that I was going through. So to actually um, reach out 
to her and look and I know now we've had conversations since that you know she was struggling just as much as me um, probably handling it a bit differently to what I was but um, you know I think because I didn't reach out and talk enough mine spiraled a little bit more into and, and obviously being predisposed to to you know probably more of a more to, of the you know go down the depression kind of anxiety you know low self-esteem kind of issues that was having a bigger big effect on me that um that she was probably better equipped to handle than what i was do you hear a rock sorry Sandra. oh sorry kimmy i was just wondering about do you think our resilience and i'm not just talking about you i'm talking about australia as a whole that there's so much um, suicide, there's so much mental illness. Do you think we've lost our resilience to cope or do you think that life's just getting harder and harder? Yeah. What, what do yeah. you believe is happening? So the, the, way I, the way I look at paint the picture of resilience, um, my resilience and my mental health are so intertwined it's, I can't separate them really. So the way I look at resilience is, and the paint the picture is, is resilience. The most thing that I can relate resilience to would be like bungee jump, jumping. So, you know, you're, when you, I've never bungee jumped, I'm not that, that courageous, but <laughs> if you ever jump off a thing, uh, off a platform, um, what helps you bounce back is your bungee cord and, and that's what the bungee cord represents my mental health. Um, if I don't look after it and I don't maintain it, eventually that bungee cord's going to fail um, and that's the way I paint the picture around resilience. So unless you um, – I don't think we're doing enough um, to maintain our resilience um, you know, they all, there's all different theories. And, yes, and I believe that you've got to be exposed to challenging stuff to build resilience. It's a, it's a muscle. Like they say, it's a muscle. Mm. Um, so you've got to be exposed to it. But, yeah, uh, if, you, if you're not maintaining that muscle like with all the other stuff that you need to be doing to maintain your mental health, that eventually that, that you know, that bungee cord's going to end up snapping. I heard a, um, a quote recently about what's happening with the children and them not having the resilience. And the first one we used to talk about was helicopter parents. But now I think it's called a snow clearing parent. Yeah. And the snow clearing parent is a parent that clears everything out of the way so that there's nothing um, that can hurt the child. Yeah. And I, I sometimes, like I remember, like, like I said, I'm from the, I'm a sixties child and, I lived in Bendigo and mum would just say, make sure you're home before dark. And we'd go out on our push bikes and we had motorbikes that we were on the creek in and um, or we'd go walking to the park. I don't know. It just, But it's almost like our kids don't get this opportunity to do that, if, especially if they live in the city and a majority of us live in the city. And so, you know, I love that you said that your resilience is you know, with your mental health. So I'm like going, well, resilience would be tackling all these things that are coming along and figuring out how to do them and being able to do them. And mental health on another term is 
you know, just that, uh, you know, a little bit different. So, um, but that's what I, I, I suppose the, the painting that picture of the, of the bungee jumping, mm. you know, my mental health was there. I was bouncing back, but because I was so consumed in, in saving my business, me, my person, myself was the last job on the list. So I didn't do enough mm. of the stuff for me to be able to maintain that part of the bungee cord. Um, you know, that part of the bungee cord wasn't wasn't getting looked after um, because I was so consumed in trying to, you know, you know basically breathe and yeah. save, the, yeah, save the business and make sure my family was being cared for and all that sort of stuff. So can you now tell us um, what does the Unbreakable Farmer do now? Well, just before we go there, oh, sorry, I'd, I'd just love to know, what was your break point? What was your rock bottom? Like what? What shoveled you out of this to where Cindy's now asked? What is the umbrella? There must have been a turning point for you. That was the, the couldn't see my way out point, the yeah. um, the dark point, the you know I can't go on point. The, um, the yeah, that was as and you've you've heard that in my my talk. So I, I call that moment in time my my two feet of perspective. That that, that two feet of perspective. Moment in my life was my turning point, um, and it wasn't a click of the finger turning point. It's taken a long time to to bounce back um, or to repair that bungee cord so I can bounce back. Um, but that was that was the low point. That, that moment in time where life had given me two choices. It was you know either be bitter and, and twisted and blame everything on everyone else, or you know, or the weather, or whatever it was, or I could choose to become better and I owed it to myself because that that in that moment in time, you know, holy hell, how did you get here? You know, how did you get to this point? Um, it was a lot of a lot of soul searching in a short amount of time to to, you know, work out I didn't really want to be here where I am right now. There's a hell of a lot of guts within you then. Um to have had that little bit of clarity in that moment of choosing between life and death, I guess, is, is, is how to put it so bluntly. There's a lot of people that don't, um, can't make that choice. And having been affected by suicide in our family, I'm very careful with the words because so many people seem to be affected by this yeah. And there is such a, I don't think anyone could ever fully appreciate or understand where someone is at to even contemplate it, let alone follow it through. And I don't it's, think any one of us could judge that. Is that it's, fair it's to a, say? It's a, it's a numb place. Mm. It's about the best way to, to describe it, a place of confusion. Um, they're, they're probably the best. Best two words to describe confusion and numb, um, not and and just losing your complete way of trying to rationalise your way out of something, um, and that's where I got to. And just being that isolated, and even though that you're surrounded by people, you're still alone. Um, you know, and that's that's why I'm 
so passionate about what I do now is is you know trying to make sure that people are you know talking and making sure that they're expressing how they're feeling and and seeking that help that they need because the alternative's not real flash. <laughs> um, we need those that are around you. Yeah. Hey guys, we hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are. There is so much more to be had. So this is just part one of this extraordinary interview with Warren Davies, The Unbreakable Farmer. Make sure you post your comments for this week into our Facebook group.com forward slash up for a chat or you can go to the wellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. And remember to stay tuned for next week where you'll hear the second part of the Unbreakable Farmer's story where we start to delve into more tools and techniques and how he's used his story to help change and impact the world. We look forward to talking to you with then. Until then, take care and we'll see you next week. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.